Well, before we look at the passage this morning, <clears throat> sorry, I wanted to update the church in terms of where we're at in, in uh, looking for a new pastor and what the next steps are. Um, our advert for a new pastor went live at the start of October. And if my calculations are correct, in the three months from the start of October uh, to the end of December, we send out 20 application packs. So those are men that uh, saw the advert uh, on, on the various websites and thought to be interested in it. As part of the application pack, we included the Articles of Faith, which we as a church uh, hold to as foundational truths. And from those 20 who requested packs, we had three people that applied. And um, we as, as elders met yesterday to review the applications. And so over the course of the next few months, God willing, um, at least two of those men will come and preach a sermon in Calvary on the morning, so you will have a chance to hear those potential pastors preach. And the elders will also interview those men, find out more about their theology and what their vision is for the church here and what their gifts are. And then we as an eldership, if you're not sure who the elders are, there's uh, Nathan Oliver and there's David Oxley. And there's David Oliver who led worship. There's myself, there's Pastor Andrew, and there's Kevin Potts. The six of us need to, after that process, agree on one person. And then the members, so if you're a member of Calvary Christian Fellowship this morning, you will then get to vote on whether you think that is the right person to lead the church here. And during the course of that vote, at least 80% of the church uh, membership need to be in agreement in order to uh, call someone. So that's where we're up to. Um, today we start as Laura said, a new series on looking for a leader. And between now and March, we as a church will be looking uh, mainly at 1 Samuel, but other parts of the Bible as well, on what a godly leader looks like. In between some of those sermons, the potential pastors will come and preach. So as you look at the person who's uh, before you, maybe a stranger, um, you should be thinking to yourself, well, does this man fulfill the criteria that Andrew preached about the previous week? You should be thinking to yourself, well, does this man fulfill the criteria that God lays out in his word in 1 Timothy 3? And you ask yourself in that question. So let's have a wee look at 1 Timothy 3 together, if you've got a Bible, and see what the Apostle Paul says are qualities that we as a church should be looking for. I've been tasked with um, speaking on the first 13 verses. Um, I have to be honest, I cannot do that. So we're looking at the first seven um, it's not that long ago that Andrew speak, spoke on all 13 verses, um, so hopefully that's still fresh in your minds. But um, let's, let's read all 13 anyway. So 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 13. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. 
Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Amen. It's been said by some that this is the scariest word in the whole of the English dictionary. It's only six letters long. It ends in an E, starts with a C. And this word has got the power to send shivers down your spine. As you get older, you like this word less and less. And I've heard some people say that Christians like this word even less than non-Christians. And that word is change. Very few of us like change and what it brings. We don't like it when we have to sit in a different seat in church. We don't like it when we go to the supermarket and our favorite flavor of tomato ketchup's gone. We don't like it when we're listening to the radio and the normal presenters on holidays. We don't like change. It's unusual. It's different. It makes us feel uncomfortable. We can't relax the same. But whether we like to admit it or not, change is coming to Calvary Christian Fellowship. This year, our church will change because God willing, we'll be getting a new pastor. After 20 years of faithful and God-blessed ministry here, Andrew's leaving and our church will change. I have never known this church without Andrew as the pastor. Maybe you're the same. Maybe if you've been coming to this church longer, you can't remember what Calvary was like before Andrew became the pastor. But the reality is, change is coming. We will not get another 39-year-old from Ipswich that walks through that door with two sons and a daughter. The next man will be different. He'll look different. He'll have a different preaching style. He may not be as tax-savvy as Andrew, so you might not get the fancy PowerPoints. They may not even have the same bad taste in football teams. They might even support Sunderland. They may be younger. They may be older than Andrew was when he came. Their life experiences will be different. But even though the next man is going to be different, all of that's okay. Why? Because over the next few months in this series entitled Looking for a Leader, you will realize that each leader was different. Week by week, as we learn about different leaders, you will, some, you will realize that some were unusual. Some had strange characteristics that God was able to use. There are different parts of their experiences in the past that God was able to use for his glory. Samuel the prophet was different from King David. King David was different from Gideon. Gideon was different from Samson. But although every leader in the Bible was different, there are some things that God requires a leader needs to look like. There are some things, some non-negotiables, in terms of what a leader needs to believe and how a leader needs to behave. And these are laid out for us nicely in the passage we've just read. So let's have a wee look. The first requirement for the leaders of a church is that they need to be a man. 
Now, we've been looking at 1 Timothy on an evening, and uh, back in December, Andrew spoke on, on chapter 2. I don't want to overlap too much in what Andrew said, but if you just flick over the page to, to chapter 2, you'll see that verse 11 says, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. It doesn't say a woman can never teach. But Paul draws the line at congregational preaching and teaching. In other, in other words, in times when a woman would, in effect, have authority over a man. And in the passage we've read this morning in chapter 3, Paul reiterates that again. Verse 4, he must manage his own family well. He must do so. Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert. Verse 7, he. You take the two chapters together and consider that a woman's to learn in quietness and in full submission... In this passage, it's clear that the elders and the pastor needs to be a man. To be clear, though, men and women are created equally, but they do serve different roles, and this is an instance where that can be seen. Someone asked John Piper the question, why didn't Jesus choose women as some of his apostles? That's the question that John Piper was asked. And this was his response. It's a bit of a long quote, so forgive me. John Piper said, the 12, the 12 apostles were all men. That was intentional. But Jesus was pro-woman to the max. But still Jesus didn't choose 12 disciples who were women. That wasn't because he was enslaved to his times. It was because in coherence with the rest of the Bible, he believed that it would be healthy for the church and the family if men assumed the role of, and here's key, Men assumed the role of Christ-like, humble, caring servant leaders. And if the women came alongside with their respective gifts to help carry his leadership through according to this, these gifts. So maybe in the church of your lady, you're thinking, well, what can I do? The answer is basically, biblically, a woman can do anything that a man can do except preach and teach in a congregational setting or exercise authority over a man. Junior church, teaching kids meetings, doing the kids talk, serving on the sound desk, part of the worship team. The list goes on and on. There's hundreds of ways that ladies can serve. But for the reasons above, when we're searching for a leader to be biblical, it needs to be a man. We're literally just going to go through this passage. Um, verse 2, it starts, Now the overseer must be above reproach. We're just going to take this through phrase by phrase. That word overseer, it literally means shepherd, someone that watches over the flock of God, someone who takes care and watches out for God's flock. I don't understand Greek, but I'm told that phrase above reproach literally means there is nothing in his conduct or behavior that someone could bring a charge or an accusation against. Can I just say, though, this isn't a standard just for leaders. This is a standard for all Christians. We are to be above reproach in everything that we do. Paul then describes in the second half of verse 2 and onwards what it means to live above reproach. The husband of but one wife. He needs to be a one-woman man. It's like the sound, it sounds like a Western, doesn't it? A John Wayne movie. A one-woman man. Well, that's, that's what... 
um, the Apostle Paul says this man needs to look like. Now, here's the question. Does verse 2 mean that when we're looking for a pastor, he needs to be married? No, I don't think it does. It's very likely that the Apostle Paul wasn't married. And if the Apostle Paul were to apply for the role of pastorate here, I'm pretty sure he would be in contention. I don't think this, is pa this passage is saying when we're looking for a leader, he needs to be married. In fact, Paul himself wrote in, in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 8, that it's a good thing if someone is able to remain single. It's a good thing to be single and not married, if that is what God has for you. So Paul in this letter to Timothy isn't saying that a leader needs to be married, but he's saying that if he is married, he needs to be a faithful man. And still in verse 2, he is to be temperate. That word literally means mild-mannered, self-controlled. When someone comes to him disagreeing with the decision that he's made, he needs to be able to control his emotions. When that person comes to him, they shouldn't be worried, is this man going to fly off the handle in rage? They should know that he's a man known to be self-controlled, someone who can exercise the fruit of self-control. If someone comes to him with a suggestion of how things could be done differently, he needs to be able to think clearly, he must be sober-minded. Then he must be hospitable. We know that in the early church, hospitality was a major thing. The early church didn't meet in one large building. They met in, in a series of small groups. So the leader had to be hospitable in terms of opening up their home to those people. And as the early church uh, experienced so much persecution, and as the believers moved around so much, it was important that hospitality was offered, even to strangers. So the overseers of the church were to be hospitable and welcoming. And that's, uh, you're going to notice as we go through this, as I said, these aren't requirements, a lot of these aren't requirements just for leaders. They're requirements for us all if we're God's people. And the requirement is the same for us. We are to be hospitable. And it says, especially to those people who can't give it in return. That's quite a challenge, isn't it? Also in verse 2, they must be able to teach. Someone who's responsible for the spiritual oversight of a church must be able to teach God's word. That applies to pastors and elders. Can you imagine if we're going through the book of Revelation and the person preaching wasn't able to explain that book clearly, how confusing it would be. The person needs to be able to teach in such a way that it simplifies complicated matters, like Andrew did with the book of Revelation. They must be able to stay true to the word of God, having God's word as the final say on a matter. They have to be bold enough to preach on controversial issues. It isn't an easy thing to bring God's word every week, I'm sure as Andrew will tell you, because often on a Sunday morning when you're staying true to God's word, it means making people feel uncomfortable. God's word is sharper than a two-edged sword. So God, by his Holy Spirit, often unsettles us as we listen to good teaching. It sharpens us. Does this verse mean that every elder needs to teach from the pulpit? Does it mean that every elder needs to, to preach on a Sunday? Verse 2 doesn't say that he should be able to preach. It says he should be able to teach. The elder's gifting could be teaching one-on-one. -on -one. The elder's gifting could be teaching in a small group or sitting down and teaching God's word faithfully in a, a smaller group setting. Now, for an elder, they might not need to preach from the front, but obviously our new pastor does. So when a potential pastor comes to us between now and Easter, 
you need to ask yourself, do you believe this man has the gift of teaching? You need to ask yourself that question. Into verse 3, he must not be given to drunkenness. As I said, these are commands for us all, not just church leaders. In the same way Paul has outlined faithfulness to his spouse, being self-controlled, not given to drunkenness, these are all commands for us all, for Christ. Now, I accept that there's a range of opinion on whether it's a good idea for Christians to drink alcohol or not. But the Apostle Paul is clear that a leader is to be an example to the flock of God. It's interesting, isn't it, that the next two commands in that verse are linked to drunkenness. So he's not violent but gentle, and he's not quarrelsome. Drunkenness and even just taking some alcohol can change your behavior, can't it? And a leader is always to be gentle, not harsh or severe or quarrelsome. Verse 3 also, he's not to be a lover of money. If you've got a Bible with you, have a wee look at Hebrews, Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, verse 5. It says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And we often think about the last part of that verse, don't we? Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. But the start of that verse is about the love of money. Because God is everything that we need. We all, as God's people, need to realize that as we grow in our love for God, that material things become less and less important. Christ is our sufficiency. He is everything that we need. As we as we look at the world, it's easy to be drawn in with what the world says is important. But God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. That's enough. God is to be our everything. I don't know if you've heard the argument before that you shouldn't have a paid minister. It's an argument that goes around back in Ireland sometimes in some denominations and brethren and Methodist circles that it's not a good idea to pay a minister. The argument normally goes that the Apostle Paul was a tent maker and he earned his own money, so therefore can't have been in paid ministry. Or sometimes the argument goes that um, there's the priesthood of all believers. I don't know if you've heard that before. It's normally taken out of context. But the argument normally goes that um, because Paul was a tent maker working a secular job as well as ministering to the needs of the church, that's the, that's the example that the New Testament church should follow. The argument goes you shouldn't pay a minister. But the Apostle Paul himself wrote in 1 Corinthians 9.14, it says, In the same way the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So he says there are people who should be earning their wages from preaching the gospel. In addition to that, if you read the passage where it talks about Paul doing tent making, it's clear it's not an ideal situation. He has to work night and day. And it also says in 2 Corinthians 11 that Paul did receive wages from some churches, just not the church in Corinth. So those who say that pastors shouldn't receive wages, but they should work a secular job as well as, um, as, well as ministering full time, I believe they're selective in the reading of Scripture. Paul was only sometimes a tent maker. 
he did receive support from churches, and Paul said himself that it's a good idea to financially support those who preach the gospel. Can you imagine having a pastor here who doesn't have the time to prepare proper sermons because he's too busy working a secular job? That's why we believe it's right and proper to have a dedicated person who's responsible full-time for shepherding, preaching, and pastoring. That's why we pay our current pastor. That's why we'll be paying our next pastor. But the passage is clear here. The church leader is not to be a lover of money. The amount that the next pastor receives should not be key in his decision to come here. Okay, let's pause for a second before we look at some more of the criteria for what we should be looking for. As I prepared this, I realized that if I was in your seat, I would be thinking, well, the elders are praying about this. I'm going to trust the elders. And when it comes to them proposing one person, I'm sure they've done their homework. I'm just going to vote for that person. Maybe you're not a member here and you're thinking, well, it's not really for me. What difference does this sermon make to me? Well, we have a responsibility before God to be actively seeking as well for this new chapter in Calvary. And whether you're a member or not, you need to be praying about this because this is your church too. Even if your name isn't down as a member, you've got a responsibility to ask God for his will, to make his will clear, because that is what he's commanded us to do. In a normal prayer meeting on a Tuesday night, we have 10 to 12 people. I know I've missed a lot of prayer meetings last year towards the end because of work commitments and, and poorly health, but that isn't a very large proportion of our church. In fact, it's 20% of the membership on a good Tuesday night. It's not a very large proportion of the church coming to the prayer meeting, is it? Now, I accept that people lead busy lives, but if you can't come to the prayer meeting, then please consider coming to the prayer meeting, or at the very least, then meet with another believer and pray together about this new chapter in the life of Calvary. Pray with your wife or husband about it. Private prayer is important, but communal prayer is also important. Maybe think about going on a prayer walk with some. Hey, Johnny, January, you couldn't suggest going on a prayer walk in the summertime. It had to be January, didn't it? But <laughs> um, consider praying with other believers about this, because this is incredibly important. And if you cannot come to the prayer meeting Tuesday night, I understand that you, maybe you've got kids or whatever, but pray with God's people about this. Back to the passage, verse 4. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. Does this mean that our pastor, our new pastor, needs to have children? Does he need to have youngsters in order to be considered? Well, I, again, I don't think it does. But if he does have kids, his kids are to respect him. The man is to conduct himself in a manner worthy of full respect. If his children go astray and rebel, the question has to be asked, well, have those children gone astray because of their parents or have those children gone astray despite their parents? That's the question that needs to be asked. He must manage his own family well. And it's common sense, isn't it? As verse, verse 5 says, if a man cannot manage his own family, he can't manage the church of God. If a man can't shepherd his own children, he won't be able to shepherd and oversee the church of Christ. 
Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert. When Caleb is on his gaming console, I'm sure he comes across the term newbie. Someone who's just starting out, someone who's a novice. In the Greek, this term, he must not be a recent convert, literally means he shouldn't be someone who's newly planted. He shouldn't be someone who's newly planted. Now, I love it when someone comes to Christ and repents from their sins. When, when you see in their face the realization that they're now a child of God. When you see in their face the realization that, that God has forgiven their sins, that they're a child of God, an inheritor of the kingdom of heaven. But it's a biblical principle not to give too much leadership responsibility to someone too soon. Because it's too soon. They're only newly planted, they're a novice, and they may become conceited, as it says in the passage. They might become proud or puffed up because of the new position. No, leadership positions are to be given to people who are more mature in their walk with God. Now, we still, all of us, including myself, all of us have an awful lot to learn. But those positions are not for new Christians. Verse 7, he must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. When he's going down to Jackie White's market, he needs to have a good reputation. When he's going down the town to get his loaf of bread, he needs to have a good reputation. When he watches football, when he plays football, he needs to have a good reputation with outsiders. Okay, we've gone through seven verses of requirements for what we should be looking for in a church leader. And I'm sure you realize by now that this list of non-negotiable criteria is a pretty tall order. As I, I've prepared this and as I've looked at this as an elder, I'm pretty humbled because I realize how far short I fall in terms of my quarrelsome nature, in terms of my temptation to love money, in terms of so many other things, I fall so short in this list. And as we've said, a lot of this items, the items on this list are commands for us all as Christians, not just church leaders. Maybe you're looking and realizing as a child of God, how far short you fall in terms of God's standard for Christian living. As you reflect on your lack of self-control, as you reflect on your proneness to drunkenness, as you reflect on your love of money, you realize how poorly you reflect Christ, how poorly I reflect Christ. If someone was to ask your next-door neighbor what you were like, would you be happy with the response? Do you have a good reputation with outsiders? At this is the start of a new series on looking for a leader. It's a good time to repent of our own shortcomings and failings. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only perfect leader. The only one who fulfills this list perfectly. So let's repent of our own shortcomings. And ask Christ to make us more faithful and diligent in our walks. At the start of this new series, I'm nearly finished looking for a leader. It's also time to ask yourself if you're willing to submit to the leadership of the church. Maybe you've attended the church for a while now and, and you're a believer, you love the Lord. Then why not think about and pray about becoming a member of the church here? Now, you wouldn't be able to vote in time. You wouldn't be able to become a member in time to vote on who the new pastor is. 
But it's an important thing to consider nonetheless. May be asked to see the articles of faith and what those are, what we as a church hold to, or chat to an elder about it. I believe the New Testament teaches that members should be local, members should be, believe, sorry, I believe the New Testament teachers, teaches, let's start again. <laughs> I believe the New Testament teaches that believers need to be members of a local church. There, I said it. In Hebrews 3.17, in the context of brotherly love, it reads, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they watch over your souls as those who must give account. I must give an account of my eldership. Obey your leaders and submit to them. One of the ways of showing submission to Christ is by submitting to the leaders that God has ordained in his local church. And the best way to do that is by becoming a member and submitting yourself to that authority. Part of looking for a leader is the realization that we need to be led. And ultimately, Christ is the head of the church and we are to be led by him. But God has put in place bodies of believers and churches who are pastors and elders. So why not submit yourself to that? As we finish... <clears throat> Please do be praying for a new pastor here. As you hear these men preach with a gracious heart, that's key, with a gracious heart, compare what you know of their lives to 1 Timothy 3. Ask the person questions when they come. Find out more about them graciously. Compare your own life to the list in 1 Timothy 3. And let's repent of our own shortcomings and failings. But let's look to Christ, who's the head of the church, the one who remains faithful, that he will lead us. This church has been going 40 years. Don't know if anyone's been there from the very start. Frank obviously has, and Denise. But this church has been going 40 years. We've been blessed with Christ-saving souls. We've been blessed with Christ adding to his church, church through the ministry here. The number of young people getting taught and those that have been taught in youth meetings is, is just incredible. And I do believe God is blessing us. But please don't take it for granted. And please, please, please be praying that God will make it clear to the elders and that God will make it clear to the members who this next man is going to be. Let's pray. Father, we sit under your word and we realize that this is a high standard that you have called for all Christians in Christian living. Lord, we realize our own shortcomings and failings. We realize our own sinful nature. And Lord, we just repent of that now and ask your forgiveness. Lord, we pray that you would make it clear, that you would make your will clear in terms of who the new man should be. Thank you that you're not the author of confusion. But Lord, you've commanded us to seek your will. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be praying for this new chapter in the life of Calvary. Help us to be praying into the situation. Help us to realize that you're the head of the church. And Lord, help us to trust you that your faithfulness will continue through all generations. I pray that you bless us now as we meet around your table and consider your death.
and resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.